Oh, hello there, and welcome to the last official conversation episode of this epic and mind-blowing Spartan series. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I'm your host, Liv, who just absolutely loves getting this deep into history, even if it is so far beyond what I'm used to and definitely takes a whole lot of different brain space. Today's episode is with Stephen Hodkinson, who is one of the top names in studying ancient Sparta, the ancient Spartan historian, basically. Actually, Stephen approached me about being on the series, and then I googled him and realized what a fun and flattering get that he actually was. Like, half the articles I was going to use were written by him anyway. (laughs) This conversation spans so much information about Sparta, from its ancient facts and truths to its use throughout the political history of Europe and North America for the last few hundred years, to its misuse and horrifying misappropriation by the Nazis, and now the far right in North America and beyond... Oh my gosh. And we talk a lot about the use of Sparta by the far right, specifically in the United States and partially in Canada. Frankly, I knew it was being used by the far right and like white supremacists in North America and in Europe. Uh, But the extent is so far beyond. We do focus on North America, though, because that is where uh, Stephen's focus is. But it goes it just goes so far deeper. (laughs) God, so much centers on that ridiculous phrase to Molon Labe, which I've told you about already. Come and take them. A phrase not shouted, not said with purpose by a man standing face to face with an enemy, but a phrase written politely in a letter, if it was ever even said at all, given it only appears in Plutarch. Gosh. And most importantly, the Persians did come and take them. But then you have to reconcile this rebranding of Thermopylae as a victory. And oh my God, I'm getting ahead of myself. We get into all of these things and it's in far more detail than I than I could have ever given you myself, which is why I'm so thrilled to have this conversation to share. It is ultimately the reason for this series, my own desire to look at Sparta for what it was, but also to specifically look at how it is often misused today so that people understand the connotations of those untruths and and understand the actual truths of this ancient city so we can work against these like modern horrifying messes, just like Atlantis. Ah, Let's go ahead and take back these ancient concepts from the racist pieces of human garbage that co-opt them for their dangerous ideologies. Conversations. A long and storied history of Sparta. Modern misuse and misconception with Stephen Hodkinson. Well, I'm I'm absolutely thrilled to to talk about Sparta generally. As you know, I've had I've already recorded conversations with a, a number of other people on some more specifics of, of Spartan culture and military and and sort of the the general, you know, uh, sort of often misuse of Sparta um, in popular mm. culture. But I'm I'm really excited to to hear sort of any and everything you have to say on the very specific use of Sparta by the right wing today and just any of those sort of the darker sides of the world that that have sort of taken on Sparta and and specifically Molon Labe and 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 everything to do with that how did you get into to talking about this and and kind of working in this this part of the Spartan subject okay well i've been working on Sparta for an awful long time and mm-hmm. for the you know, early part of my career 
I was focusing upon ancient Sparta itself. Um, and I was focusing mainly on Spartan society and economy. And I finished a big book project on that um, around the year 2000. And I thought at that stage, uh, well, what am I going to do next? Uh, am I going to move on to other subjects? Um, but I thought, well, it'd be a shame to um, not to make use of all the expertise I've built up. And I was actually trained uh, as much in modern as in ancient history. And I thought, mm. actually, yeah, there's a very interesting afterlife of, of ancient Sparta, uh, all the way, all the ways in which Sparta has been used uh, since antiquity, going right up to the present day. So uh, I devised a project uh, whereby I combine looking at ancient Sparta with looking at the way Sparta has been used in more recent times. And the theme I got for that was um, Sparta in comparative perspective. I got very interested in the question about how exceptional was Sparta or how typical was Sparta compared with other Greek states, um, but also how Sparta had been compared with um, societies at other times and places, uh, and particularly um, with modern societies and the way that modern societies have used Sparta. So that's how I started getting into what's uh, known in the trade as Spartan reception. Mm. Um, and I've, I've done previous study of the way Sparta has been used in British liberal and left-wing thought um, in the middle of the 20th century. And then I moved on from that to looking at how Sparta was used um, within the US intelligence analysis during the Cold War. So mm. I suppose it was a nat natural progression, therefore, to go on you know, from the late 20th century, the Cold War, uh, in, into the early 21st century. And of course, the great stimulus for that was the appearance of Zack Snyder's film mm. uh, 300, which came out in, in 2006. And that stimulated a lot of uh, popular uses of, of Sparta that uh, are, are new and different and the far right have latched onto that. So that, that's really how I got onto this topic in brief. That's really fascinating. I, I would have never thought about the Cold War usage of Sparta too. So I'm, I'm kind of curious about that as well now. Um, but it, of course, you know, so I'm somebody who is, I, I was a teenager i was 18 in 2006 when when 300 came out and and i was already kind of obsessed with ancient greece and so i definitely have that that connection point and i'm one of those people who you know over the years slowly learned more and more about the the ways in which that that is you know it, it's both like has bits of accuracy and then has also you know has so much herodotus as we know and then but also has all this like these kind of implications that really affect how we think about Sparta now. And it's it's utterly fascinating. I will be talking about that movie in this this series on Sparta. Absolutely. Because it's it's unavoidable. Um, but it, it's so interesting to me seeing it that way. But and of course, now and I'm going to ramble a little bit, but hearing about the usage of it in the Cold War is also equally fascinating. So you know, that's obviously I want to talk a lot about about the far right usage and, and sort of the really problematizing of, of Sparta. But can I ask for a brief idea of, of how Sparta was used during the Cold War in that way? That just sounds really interesting. Well, Sparta was often used as an analogy for the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, hmm. 
Hmm. And there's two broad phases in this. In the early Cold War, so we're talking about the late 40s, 50s, 60s, there's often a great interest among uh, political figures in comparing the Cold War with the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta. And in those comparisons, they don't particularly identify Sparta with the Soviet Union and the USA with Athens. Uh, That comes rather later. Um, But that forms the backdrop to what happens in the 1980s. And the political context for this is that during the late 60s and 70s, there have been a four in relations between the USA and the USSR, uh, what was known as detente. And that started to collapse in the late 70s. And then Ronald Reagan came into power in 1981 um, with a much more antagonistic approach towards the Soviet Union, at least initially. Eventually, he got on quite well with Mikhail Gorbachev, but initially he was very uh, harsh on the Soviet Union, called it the the evil empire. Um, And it's in that context, with with this new uh, antagonistic phase of American thinking, that the intelligence community is scrambling around trying to work out how to adjust their thinking about the Soviet Union. Because during the era of detente, they had often thought about the Soviet system as not too dissimilar from the US system. They thought they could educate Soviet leaders to um, Western ways of thinking about um, interpower, um, great power rivalry. But with this new antagonistic uh, policy, they were trying to find ways of thinking about the Soviet Union as being very different. And this is when they picked on Sparta. And they started to use Sparta as a, an ancient exemplar of a uh, militaristic but economically fragile society. And this tied in with Reagan's policy of building up the US arms and in order to forced the Soviet Union to devote more of their uh, expenditure on defence and to and to collapse the Soviet economy in that way. So if, if you read quite a number of uh, intelligence community documents, uh, you'll find these comparisons between Sparta and the Soviet Union. And it, it even got to into congressional testimony. Hmm. Uh, Robert M. Gates, who was at the time the Deputy Director of Intelligence at the CIA, um, even said in congressional testimony that uh, the Soviet Union is very much like Sparta. Virtually the entire society and economy um, is geared in a way that in which the military receives first priority. Um, and then going on from that, the Department of Defence even commissioned a 40-odd page um, paper, which is called Soviet Defence Spending, the, the Spartan Model. Um, wow. Now, all that thinking came to an end with, with the, the end of the Cold War and you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union. But you know, for, for those few years in the 1980s, it, it was really uh, very prominent in, in U.S. thinking about the Soviet Union. That's so interesting. I mean, as I'm a Canadian and, and so, you know, we have our own opinions on the states, but it's so interesting to hear that because it just I mean, even the idea of, of military spending, it's like, well. Which country is particularly well known now for for its you know absolutely absurd over the top military spending? It 
uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly not Russia. Well, I mean, certainly Russia as well, but more so the States. <laughs> so that's just, that's fascinating. That's, and uh, Sparta one, two. So there's so many different reasons why that feels like an odd, an odd like connection to make, but I suppose it's not, you know, <laughs> not out of the yeah. ordinary for them to connect to ancient Greece in that kind of way. <laughs> yes. And, and part of the, um, um, reason for that is that if you're going to compare the USA with any ancient Greek state, you're going to choose Athens. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to choose so, democracy. Yes, precisely. Yes, um, and and that fits very well the sort of the opposition that uh, Reagan tried to create between Western democracies and the the uh, the, the Soviet evil empire. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. Sparta becomes the, the natural uh, focus of attention. And at the time, in the ministry, and so in, in the Department of Defense, um, there were quite a lot of thinkers who had strong historical interests. So it wasn't at all odd for them um, to go back to ancient Greece and, and start thinking uh, about sort of possible analogies between uh, between Sparta and the USSR. Mm-hmm. Well, it is you know such a common habit to connect any kind of like western ideas to to pull it back to ancient greece in those ways so yeah it, it's not surprising but it is an interesting interesting way of looking at it and that's something i'd never never thought of um, and then sort of an interesting transition then to to the more modern ideas a lot of which like you're saying have sort of not necessarily fully come out of of the movie 300 but i think really been exacerbated by them um particularly the the use of sparta as a kind of um standing up to tyranny idea and, and things like that in the way that that these kind of groups in the states have used it, you know, as a sort of model of, of freedom, which is fascinating in so many ways based on an actual Spartan history. But um, I'm trying to form a question around that, but <laughs> I'm more so just generally really interested in it, in it broadly. So um you know, is there is there kind of an, an aspect of that usage of Sparta that you that you look at closely, or that you're you find most interesting yourself? Well, the the aspect that I've been working on the most is, is the way that the idea of Sparta as a military state, or even a militaristic state, mm-hmm. uh, ha- has been exploited um, by the right and particularly by the far right in, in recent mm-hmm. years, and. This is a global phenomenon. I've worked most, mostly on the USA, but, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But it is a global phenomenon that you'll find far-right groups around the world making use of Sparta. So, for example, the, the Reclaim Australia nationalist movement have had a demonstration back in Sydney in 2015 in which several of the demonstrators are, are wearing the helmets and cloaks as worn by the Spartans in 300, and they're mm. carrying their shields with the the inverted V lambda s- symbol on it. Mm-hmm. And then within Greece, the, the Golden Dawn political party, uh, Chrissy Hathgi, uh, used to uh, invoke Sparta as a model. They'd have their annual celebrations at the site of the Battle of Thermopylae, and in, in their e- extreme attacks on... Um, uh, immigrants, they would often uh, call that the cryptea, um, which, as mm. you, you probably know, is the institution that some sources claim 
the Spartans uh, went out, young Spartans went out purposely to kill helots. Mm-hmm. So um, within Greece, Golden Dawn identified itself with the Spartans. And then within Europe, more broadly, the identitarian movement uh, has adopted the uh, the lambda sim- symbol in a stylized form as, as its basic logo. And the, the identitarian movement exists in, in um, several Western European countries. And they're typically uh, anti-immigrant, uh, very strongly nationalist. And um, I, I was um, giving a, a talk in Lyon in France a few weeks ago, and it was in France that the, the identitarian movement uh, was founded back in the early 21st century. And uh, it has its headquarters uh, in Lyon, and mm. the, the far-right group there opened a, a boxing gym uh, attached to uh, their bar, and they called the boxing gym... Um, uh, La Gauguet, in other words, huh. the the supposed name for the uh, the public education system for Spartan boys. Yeah. So it's it's a global phenomenon, but but I think the the American appropriations of uh, the uh, Spartans have been particularly interesting because it's been quite diverse. There's been various different groups on the right both the moderate right, but also the far right um, that, that's, that's been using Sparta. And if you like, I can go into a few more, few de- details, but, but it... Uh, I would love that, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, okay, fine. I, I don't want to, to, to bore our listeners with too many details, but uh, the phenomenon that I've been looking at mainly starts during the 2010s. It starts in the early 2010s. So a few years after 300 has had its opportunity to penetrate the public consciousness but it also follows on from the election of Barack Obama as president mm-hmm. in he comes uh, into office in early 2009 and, and that seems to be the the dual trigger 300 and then the election of the first African-American president that formed the trigger for the far-right groups to start becoming very active in using Sparta mm-hmm. and the three main strands which happen roughly sequentially. The first strand is the appropriation of the phrase mononabe, come and take them, the phrase supposedly spoken by Leonidas at Thermopylae when Xerxes um, supposedly um, demanded the Spartans lay down their arms. Now, in reality, as you may have been told by Rule or by uh, other colleagues, Molonabe uh, is almost certainly a later invention. Mm-hmm. It only appears in one ancient source 500 years after the uh, event. And uh, even in that source, it's not, it's not a shouted response, uh, as in <laughs> yeah. the, the film, but it's, a, it's in a formal written diplomatic exchange. But anyway, the strong belief is that in response to Xerxes' demand, that Leonidas said, Molonabe, you must come and take our arms if you want to. And that, that has long been a rallying cry of the gun lobby. In the early 10s, this use of the phrase intensifies. So, for example, there's a 2013 documentary called Molonabe and subtitled How the Second Amendment Guarantees America's Freedom. And the wow. documentary's pre-release trailer includes a clip from 300, showing Leonidas uh, brandishing his, uh, his his sword. 
And the documentary features uh, several established right-wing intellectuals, quite respectable people, but it was also produced in association with the far-right organisation, the Oath Keepers, Hmm. which had only recently been founded in early 2009, uh, very early on into Barack Obama's presidency. So you can see the far right uh, um, being behind this this film. And then looking at the firearms industry, there's a, a host of newly founded firms in the early 2010s that incorporate Monon Labe in, into their uh, name. So one example is uh, uh, Monon Labe Industries based in Florida, which was fa- founded in 2012. And then also in 2012, the... Um, Firearms manufacturer Sig Sauer introduced a Spartan range of semi-automatic pistols, um, which uh, proved so popular that uh, they even produced a Spartan II range in 2019. Wow! And these these uh, these handguns were decorated with Spartan symbols. There's a on the on the hand grip. There's a stylized Corinthian helmet as worn in 300. And then there's the phrase Mononabe in Greek lettering. So it's obviously Greek lettering so familiar to ordinary handgun uh, owners that it doesn't need to be put in in normal transliterated form. Mm-hmm. And Mononabe is also engraved on one side of the barrel slide. So, uh, and you know, this range, as I said, was so popular that it was uh, a second range came out in 2019. So that's one strand that starts in the early 2010s, the use of Mono Nabe. Then a second strand emerges during the 2016 uh, presidential campaign. A number of Trump's uh, online supporters start using images from 300 in their promotion of Trump's campaign. Um, So, for example, on Twitter in October 2016, there's a, a user called uh, Total Frat Forum who posted an image of Trump standing next to and applauding the ranks of Spartan soldiers as depicted in 300. It's a, a scene from 300. And the tweet itself uh, proclaims uh, from Sparta to Yorktown to America, from Leonidas to Washington to Trump, people fighting tyranny. Wow. Um, so that, that's very interesting. And then there's uh, an even more dramatic example. Uh, uh, I'm just picking out one or two examples. Back in May 2016, another Trump supporter who bears the white supremacist uh, name Aryan Wisdom, uh, he Ooh. posts a YouTube video which goes on for about six minutes and it's called uh, 300 Making America Great Again. And it contains scenes from 300 adapted to contemporary politics. And Aryan Wisdom does this by superimposing the heads of modern Americans on the bodies of characters from the film. So he actually has action shots from the film, but with uh, modern political figures uh, imposed uh, upon the the bodies of the the film characters. So Trump, of course, is... uh, his head is superimposed on the body of Leonidas and the heads of his opponents on various evil characters uh, from the film. Um, So Barack Obama is depicted as the Persian envoy 
at the start of the film who visits Sparta uh. demanding a submission and whom Trump slash Leonidas kills by kicking him down, down the well. Uh, Hillary Clinton is given a, a rather minor role um, <laughs> under George Soros, who's the real villain, um, oh, wow. the, uh, the Hungarian-American philanthropist. Uh, and he's depicted, of course, as King Xerxes. And the video ends with uh, Trump slash Leonidas throwing the spear that grazes the face of, of the financier or, or slash Persian king. And this video was so popular that in the six months between May and November 2016, when the election took place, it had been viewed over two million times. Um, wow. And it, it reached over six million by the November 2020 election. So uh, we, we have here the imagery from the film actually being used to uh, to boost uh, uh, Donald Trump's uh, election campaign. So that's the second oh, wow. trend. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's Just quite crazy. Just taking it all right? in. Yeah, I, I was certainly aware of bits of it, but but that level of of taking the movie itself is so interesting, and I can't help but think. And of course, it's like you can't you can't apply this level of logic to what these people are doing, obviously. But I just can't help but think like the Spartans lost; <laughs> they lost in history, and they lost in the movie. Why is this a thing? Like, it's just it's such an interesting choice to to do that when they so explicitly lost yes and of course this goes back to antiquity the way the spartans themselves converted thermopylae mm-hmm. into a triumph um yeah. i suppose um ah the answer is partly within the film um right at the very end of 300 the film switches to the Battle of Plataea the following year, which, of course, the Greeks led by a Spartan general win. And mm. in the story of 300, Leonidas orders one of the Spartans not to stay at Thermopylae, but to go back to Sparta to, to tell the story. And, and, and this man is shown just before the Battle of Plataea rousing the Greek troops with the story of... Uh, the Spartans' heroic self-sacrifice, and that inspires the the Greeks uh, in the year after Thermopylae to to win the Battle of Plataea and to to crush the Persians. So that sort of is is how the film itself sort of uh, converts Thermopylae uh, into the basis for the ultimate victory. Right. Right. Um, uh, one thing I, I, I might have said earlier, but I'll just throw it in now, is that mm-hmm. um, the film is more or less a shot-for-shot adaptation of Frank Miller's graphic novel from mm-hmm. 1998. And Frank Miller was one of the uh, uh, consultants and executive producers of the film. So, And, and, and it's, it's Miller who has this idea of introducing this character who, who will tell the story and therefore in, inspire the Greeks. Mm-hmm. So interesting, yeah. In, indeed, yes, it it, it is mm-hmm. it is highly interesting. But that that's I think how the uh, the circle is squared. Right, right. That's the way they kind of make it work in their in their heads. Uh, that's one of the things that I've found most interesting. Learning just doing all of this research and, and speaking to people is the the way that even in antiquity it was kind of turned into a victory in its own way. 
you know, mm. transformed into this this great thing that they could kind of hang their hats off of for the next few hundreds of years, you know. Yes, and of course in antiquity, an honourable death in war, even in defeat, it is something to be proud of. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, when the Spartans um, meet their ultimate comeuppance, uh, just a century after Thermopylae at the Battle of uh, Leuctra, in 371, where they're they're defeated quite heavily by the Thebans. When the news comes back to Sparta, um, uh, Xenophon tells us that on the day after the battle, you could see the relatives of those who died going about Sparta with their heads held high, looking radiant um, at the self-sacrifice that their, uh, their fallen um, relatives have made even in a defeat mm-hmm. um, where he says um, the relatives of the survivors are stay indoors or if any are seen outdoors they're looking gloomy and despondent um, even in defeat it is glorious um, to to have given your life in, in that defeat mm-hmm. oh, that's also interesting <laughs> I, yeah. I tend to just say that a lot <laughs> taking all of this information and it, it happens every time uh, but I'm just sort of yeah it, it's all these different things of, of, you know, how they've sort of then been transformed into what we think of today, or even just these ideas from, from antiquity itself. And uh, yeah, it's just, it, I'll just say it's interesting again, but I, I am, I interrupted your, your, before your third strand to talk more about 300. So I, yeah, I'd love to make sure we circle back to the, the, ex, the additional pieces of, of how this works in, in modern America. Indeed. Well, the third strand then developed during Trump's presidency, mm. um, and it's the invocation by the far right of Spartan symbols and the Spartan themselves to mobilise violence against leftist opponents, particularly the, the loose coalition of uh, leftist uh, opponents of Donald Trump, known as Antifa. Mm-hmm. Um, and the backstory to this is that many of these far right groups are are anti-government originally. The Oath Keepers start as an anti-government organisation opposed to the government of Barack Obama. When Trump comes into power, they uh, do a partial rethink. Some of them are initially quite suspicious about Trump, but gradually they they warm to him and come to regard him as their man. And therefore they turn their opposition away from the federal government, at least while Trump's in power, and towards uh, this loose coalition of leftist uh, protesters called Antifa. And there starts quite early on in Trump's presidency um, a series of um, pro-Trump rallies, which are often uh, opposed by Antifa activists. And many of the pro-Trump rallies are marked by the far right um, wearing Spartan symbols. And it starts as early as April 2017, so just three months after Trump has got into power in January 2017, there's a series of protests in Berkeley, California. And in one of the protests, uh, there's images of, of a man carrying a, a black flag showing in white lettering a, a, a Corinthian helmet, and then the words, the familiar words, Molo Nabe. Although, in this case, they're, they're misspelt. Um, <laughs> uh, they're misspelt Molo Laps. Um, 
they do love to use a stigma as a as an e don't they <laughs> yes yeah, yes the, the, that well the, the, yes the, the the stigma is used in the and the uh, and and the the new the n uh, somehow becomes becomes a pi um oh right weird <laughs> i mean to be fair, most of the flags are correctly spelt, but this is just one notable example that a lot of people have picked up on, partly because it, 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 was, it was the first uh, in, in, in a series. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. 
GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. And then there's one very interesting demonstrator who appeared at a number of rallies throughout 2017, 18, and even into 2019. His real name is John Turano, and he subsequently became known as Based Spartan because he always appeared at these rallies wearing Spartan gear, uh, and in particular, a replica Corinthian helmet. And this helmet's particularly interesting because he seems to uh, adorn it with different symbols on different occasions. Um, mm. And the symbols don't, often don't, at first sight, don't seem to cohere very well. So, for example, in one of the April 2017 Berkeley demonstrations, his Corinthian helmet is wearing a Star of David symbol. It's also uh, bearing a LGBTQ peace symbol. Um and then, in contrast, it bears the words "Lives Matter," which is purely a riposte to Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and one might think that these are mutually incompatible symbols, but um, it's worth bearing in mind that the, the far right does include a segment of uh, LGBTQ uh, activists, uh, even if they're they're not they're by far from the majority. Um, and uh, Chirara seems to be a rather complex man who has very f- strong far-right beliefs, but has a streak of tolerance in, in, in him. Therefore, he can show Jewish symbols and, and L- LGBTQ symbols as well. Hmm. Um, so that's one strand. Um, and then in August 2018, the Oath Keepers, we'll come back to the Oath Keepers again, they announce a what they call an upcoming Spartan training group program. And wow. um, their website um, has a lot about it. it. It appears on the website for a good 18 months between August 2018 and, and January 2020, just before the pandemic. Um, and they say that their aim is to form a pool of trained volunteers to serve as the local militia under the command of a patriotic governor loyal to the Constitution, or if called upon by President Trump to serve the nation. So they're obviously envisaging a sort of a a conflict in which Antifa will rise up and uh, challenge Trump and uh, this uh, Spartan training group militia will will, will be there to uh, support uh, uh, Republican governors and, and, and the president himself. Um, it's not clear how far they got with this training group program. They keep mentioning it for, for eighteen months, but always in terms of you know we're we're, we're building up this 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 uh, these training groups, and its last appearance comes in January twenty twenty, just before the pandemic, when they 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 aim to deploy a leadership and training team in Virginia, 
um, in connection with uh, a gun rights lobby day against the Democrat governor, Ralph Northam's planned measures of gun control. And then the pandemic hits and things go rather quiet, you know, for, for obvious reasons. Um, and then, of course, the Oath Keepers got, get wound up in the January 6th insurrection. Um, so it, the Spartan training group disappears at that point. Um, but, it, but, it, but it's interesting that they, that they were building it up for so long and who knows what would have happened uh, uh, but for the pandemic and the, the lockdowns mm-hmm. that uh, resulted. And then all this feeds into January the 6th itself and you know, the capital insurrection. And um, you've got men showing Spartan symbols there. There's at least two men who are, that there are shots of who are wearing replica Corinthian helmets, uh, again, modelled upon the Spartans in 300. And there's another man carrying a, a black flag bearing the, the Molon Labbe uh, slogan. And then six days after the insurrection, on 12th of January, um, the extreme right-wing Republican congresswoman, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, she wore a Molon Labbe face mask in Congress. And then she tweets about it provocatively the, the following day. She says, I don't think the fake news media likes my mask. So... Um, Going going right up then, you know, up to the capital insurrection and and and, and following, uh, you've got these uh, you know, displays of Spartan symbols in public displays and often quite violent rallies in in support of Donald Trump. So so that that that's the third strand. So on the basis of the capital insurrection, I've got an article coming out in November which will be called Spartans on the Capitol. I saw that listed. I was, I was interested in that as well. Yeah. It's, it's just so, I mean, it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to take in and and form any kind of like real thoughts around it beyond just sort of shock and, and general interest in, in kind of how it it came about this way. Um, Learning the, the real background behind the Spartan military and, and how they actually handled everything and how, how Thermopylae became what it did has been one of the most fascinating things for me just in in the the little research that I have done up to this point, which is that I'm still in the really early stages of this this series of episodes. And I've still sort of had my mind blown at every turn of of how much Sparta like, you know, did actually interest themselves in their military and, and how how Thermopylae turned into the sort of mythologized idea that it that it is now. And it's been very fascinating, but then specifically to see it, I've, I've sort of now honed myself to seeing Molon Labe wherever it might appear, you know, mm. through obviously having my associations with ancient Greek generally, but it sort of, it seems to pop up more and more the, the more I seem to know about it. Um, there is oddly, and this is, I assume not right wing, but there, there is a, a business near my house in Victoria, BC. So just this silly little town. And, um, they it, it's a, a loan company that specializes in marine loans for like boats mm. and jet skis and they're called spartan loans and they have molon labe written in enormous greek letters inside and it's the most bizarre thing that i'll never understand they've just themed themselves around sparta in this way that it just makes absolutely no sense um and it's 
unrelated but very odd in this way so i'm like i'm i, I assume you don't have be- these bad leanings but i don't know if you know what you're doing by using the- these symbols for for boats too which is what's so funny like not not a group well known for their navy hmm <laughs> but- well, that that's strange, um, and I'd be very interested to know when that firm was founded. You know, whether it was founded, you know, in the two thousand and tens, like these these uh, firearms firms in the in the USA. Um, I know. I'm curious as well because it it's just it's very odd all around. Mm. And I mean, there are other Canadian uses of Molenabic. I mean, Molenabic has become wound up with the the anti-vax movement, so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the protests in uh, um, in Canada, um, the, the the truckers' convoys, uh, the so-called freedom convoys, um, a number of, the, of, of their supporters uh, have been wearing Canadian helmets and um, um, Molenabe uh, slogans. So uh, I think uh, you know the, the, this is continuing. And um, uh, uh, Catherine Bluin at and I've forgotten what Canadian university she's currently at. She's at U of yes. T. Yes, you, 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 uh, of course, you know Catherine. Um, yes, we're, we're um, Twitter friends. <laughs> yes, and, and you, uh, you'll have seen her Twitter feed where she lists all the the people who donated yes. and all their historical things and uh, their connections. And because Scarlett Molinari comes up frequently. Yes, uh, yes, yes, I forgot. I read through that religiously when it was happening, and I'd forgotten about that. So thank you for that reminder as well. Yes. Yeah, because fact, of where I live, they they the convoy that hit Victoria because we're the capital of BC. They, they went past my apartment every week to do that nonsense. Right. And right. I did try to avoid looking because it was also horribly loud at all moments of the day, but mm. I, I didn't, I didn't see any Molan Labe here in Victoria, but I do remember all of Catherine's posts and then also seeing some photos myself of, of the flags and things in Ottawa, even so, so silly. Well, I mean, you were asking about, you know, um, the origins of all this and mm-hmm. um in my opinion although the particular uses i've been talking about have their own distinctive characteristics and they've been boosted enormously by the film 300 um there was a much longer tradition of seeing sparta mm-hmm. in very militaristic terms as you rightly said earlier i mean Spart- spartan were very efficient at war and had a very strong army um in reality they didn't devote all their time to training for war, as many people think. Um, mm. And if you look at uh, the way that the Spartan military characteristics are portrayed in early modern thought, say by thinkers like Machiavelli and by other thinkers in the 16th, 17th and early 18th centuries, they normally depict Sparta in quite balanced ways. They acknowledge its strong martial discipline, but they're equally interested in Sparta's what they call good laws. And Mm. from their perspective, looking back at uh, ancient republics, they think that good arms and good laws go together. And in in part, it's that if you have a strong um, um, citizen militia, you can defend yourself uh, against uh, foreign tyrants but your citizens will also be invested in your republic, and therefore you'll have a you'll have a, have a, a good civic structure with, with good laws, and so the the military and the civic aspects are balanced, and and that seems to be the view of Sparta, roughly until you know the eighteenth century, 
and Sparta is generally seen as the the archetype or the model Greek city state. Uh, hmm. At this period, Athens is still regarded negatively because democracy for early modern thinking is a negative phenomenon. It's it's mob rule. Um, hmm. But then you get this change around the end of the 18th century and in the context of the American and then the French revolutions where you've got these massive political changes and the formation of uh, of, of self-governing non-monarchical um, societies. And both in America and France, um, um, there's a, a turn of thought away from Sparta. So, for example, the founding fathers in the USA, they reject Sparta as a suitable model for their new federal uh, republic. John Adams, for example, characterizes Sparta as producing warriors and politicians and nothing else. Hmm. Um, and Alexander Hamilton says that Sparta is little better than a well-regulated camp. Um, for, for Hamilton, Sparta is a symbol of all the wars between small Greek states that would happen to the American states unless they form a strong federal unity. So Sparta is decidedly rejected by the founding fathers and portrayed in very militaristic terms. And a similar thing happens in France too. Sparta becomes associated with the excesses of the terror in in 1792-1793, such that uh, when the terror comes to an end and its leading proponent, Robespierre, is overthrown, there's a reaction against Sparta. And there's a very interesting man called... uh, uh, Constantin François Volny, who had been imprisoned during the terror, had luckily escaped the guillotine, and he becomes a professor of history at the new uh, École Normale in Paris in 1795. And in his lectures, he castigates the Spartan as equivalent to the, the Iroquois of the old world. Uh, and he says, uh, the modern Lycurguses, Lycurguses, the legendary Spartan lawgiver, the modern Lycurguses have spoken to us only of bread and of iron. The iron of pike produces nothing but blood. So uh, he's portraying Sparta in in these very martial, uh, violent terms. And this becomes Sparta's legacy in, in, in liberal French thought after the revolution. And there's a famous thinker called Benjamin Constant, who gives a, um, a major lecture comparing ancient and modern liberty. And in it, he describes Sparta as a monastic barracks, which combines Republican forms with uh, the enslavement of individuals. Hmm. So there's this decisive turn away from Sparta, and then it enters British thought. Um, Britain is undergoing a sort of a, a, a liberal phase. Uh, there's various formats which are are extending the franchise franchise to uh, ever-widening groups. And this is where the idea of Sparta as a military state enters classical scholarship. And you've got the the liberal Anglican um, scholar Thomas Arnold describing Spartan institutions as chiefly military, uh, more suited to a beleaguered garrison than to men united in a civil society. And this is repeated... in very similar terms by um, the man who wrote a massive 10-volume history of Greece 
George Grote, uh, uh, was enormously influential within within um, within British thought. And in his history of Greece, George Grote described Lycurgus, Sparta's lawgiver, as the founder of a, a warlike brotherhood rather than the lawgiver of a political community. So you've got America, France, Britain now viewing Sparta negatively in very militaristic terms. Then in the 1860s, the concept of militarism is first developed. The word first appears first in French and and then then in in German and then in in, in English in the 1860s. And Sparta becomes one of the states that's associated with this new new term um, alongside modern Prussia uh, and uh, uh, modern Prussia, Russia, and uh, I think it's Dahomey in, in in Africa. Hmm. So you've got all these negative uh, ideas of Spartan militarism, and then in Germany itself, um, you've got Spartan martial values being used as a positive model within the the Prussian cadet schools. Uh, there's a marvelous book about this written by Helen Roche uh, called Sparta's German Children, where she looks at the Prussian cadet schools and then at the their Nazi successors, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and how she shows how how Sparta was integral to the values and uh, upbringing of, uh, of of these Prussian and then Nazi cadets. So, already by the t- start of the twentieth century, um, you've got this ingrained idea that Sparta is a militaristic state. The Nazis then develop that; they uh, they pick up on uh, Sparta. Uh, as uh, a a model, they even believe that they're racially descended from the Spartans. The Spartans were the first uh, ancient Aryans from whom the modern Germans are descended. And the very first textbook in the new Adolf Hitler schools is a textbook on Sparta. Wow! Um, yeah, that's right. Um, written by a a, um, a classicist, come archaeologist, a man called uh, uh, Otto Wilhelm Bonvacano. And the subtitle of the this book captures the essence of how the Nazis viewed Sparta. The subtitle is The Lifestyle of a Nordic Master Race. Wow. Indeed, yes. Yeah. <sighs> so, um, and then that in turn prompts a reaction in contemporary Britain you know, during World War II, because for British liberal thinkers in particular, um, this is grist to their mill. They they accept the Nazis' self-identification with Sparta, but portray it in very negative terms. So, for example, in 1941, Gilbert Murray, who is the retired professor of Greek at Oxford, uh, he gives a lecture in London where he compares Britain's world wars against Germany to Athens' war against Sparta, the Peloponnesian War. And, uh, of course, Britain is Athens and Sparta is Germany. And he reviles Sparta as a reactionary militaristic land power, which sacrificed most of its earlier culture to stark efficiency in war. So you've got this idea intensified by these international conflicts. And then, of course, you've got the Cold War, US analogies that I mentioned earlier, which Mm -hmm. simply intensify this uh, so by the mid to late 20th century, the idea that Sparta 
is a militaristic society um, whose citizens do nothing other than sort of uh, fight, um, mm-hmm. is ingrained in intellectual culture, but also in popular culture too. And you find it in all sorts of uh, popular histories and, and you know, general popular accounts of, of Sparta. And it's these accounts that Frank Miller was reading um, when he composed his graphic novel 300, which was the basis for the subsequent film. Mm-hmm. Um, and his recommended reading at the back of the graphic novel draws upon a number of, of, of recommends a number of works who all portray the Sparta in, in these, these very militaristic terms. So I think you can yeah. draw a, a rather circuitous line, but a line that hangs together between, you know, between this long-term change of thought that starts in the late 18th century and is very much tied in with politics and continues to be tied in with international relations in the 20th century through to Frank Miller and then to Zack Snyder and then onto, onto the far right in the, in, yeah. in the early 21st century. Yeah, yeah, it's, I'm fascinated by by that history of it. Um, I'm thank you for sharing all of that. One thing that that came up when you were talking about it in my mind is the question of um, like when when these you know America and France and everything when when they were developing this idea of Sparta as a negative as a militaristic society that they didn't want to model themselves off of. Do you know if there was anything that came in in terms of of the practice of slavery? Because that's the thing that that comes to my mind, of course, with with the states um, and this negative idea of Sparta. And of course, you know, all of ancient Greece, for the most part, had enslavement. But of but Sparta, you know, and the, the Helot population is obviously like a huge difference in that way. So, um, I mean, given that U.S. didn't stop slavery for some time after their founding, I'm assuming it didn't come into their minds. But it's something that sort of immediately came to my mind. Do you know if there was any if there's any recognition of that in, in what we know of that history? Not so much as far as I know in American thought, but it is prominent in British thought. Mm. Um, and again, the 18th century, and particularly the late 18th century, is the key turning point. I, I did a bit of work on this some years ago, um, and if you look at early modern accounts of the Spartans and the Helots, they are very unsympathetic to the Helots. Um, hmm. They portray the Spartans in very positive terms, and in particular, they, they take one anecdote that appears in Plutarch's Life of Lycurgus. If the uh, anecdote in which Plutarch says that Lycurgus um, um, used to, the Spartans used to get the Helots drunk and bring them into their common messes in order to show the boys what an awful thing drunkenness was. Um, And early modern thinkers in general use this as a kind of an improving educational tale um, against alcoholism. Um, You know, they're saying to their young men, they don't become uh, drunken like like these awful helots. Wow. And that, of course, to modernise is, is extraordinary and, and really quite vile, uh, given that the helots have been forced to become drunk. Um, but um, in sort of 16th, 17th century writings, the, there's, the, there's little sympathy uh, for the helots. Mm-hmm. Um, 
this changes in the late in the 18th century when you know, there's this general re, uh, growing revulsion against slavery per se and you can see the helots becoming regarded um as an oppressed people rather than uh, as as a as a group to, to to be viewed negatively um so th- there's there's a number of groups who who call themselves the helots in order to to express their their oppression so you even get um a situation where the small coastal town of leaf which is dominated this is in Scotland. It's dominated by its uh, larger neighbour Edinburgh, and the, the citizens of Leith call themselves the Helots of Leith um, uh, as a, a mark of their oppression, but, 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 but by by people from Edinburgh. Hmm. And and more more seriously, in, in Ireland, the uh, the Catholic um, peasantry often adopt the term Helots for themselves. As a symbol of their oppression by the Protestant uh, landowners, and but the most interesting thing of all is actually is what happens in the 1790s in the British Parliament when uh, Wilberforce and others are bringing parliamentary motions into Parliament to try to get the slave trade uh, prohibited, and um, quite a number of the parliamentary debates. And those outside Parliament reflecting on the debates, bringing the helots into the debate. And the helots are used in quite different ways, uh, but always negatively. Um, The opponents of the slave trade will argue that the treatment of slaves in the West Indies is is as bad as that of the helots. And so the helots are a negative example but they're used in order to, to, to show how bad uh, the, the, the current uh, slavery is. The, de- the defenders of West Indian slavery say uh, our slavery is far more benign than that of the helots. Um, uh-huh. we, we, we give our slaves sort of uh, privileges uh, of various kinds uh, and we don't have the cryptair going out killing our helots. Now, of course, a lot of this is... Uh, entirely uh, fake news it, 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 it's an apologia uh, and the reality was 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 far more uh, vicious and, and, uh, and brutal and um, uh-huh. but it's interesting that whether used by opponents of slavery or defenders of slavery the helots have now become a negative thing right uh, and, and so there has been has been this change of thought and it doesn't feed through immediately into negative views of Sparta as a whole, but that, that comes shortly afterwards uh, in, in Britain in the in the 1830s and, and, and onwards. Um, and of course, that's a time when not just the slave trade, but but, but slavery itself is, is abolished in 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 in, uh, in in British dominions. Right. Right. Wow. That's. Yeah, <laughs> taking it all in again. The 
The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. It, yeah, it's interesting to, to see it that way, uh, especially just thinking back to the states of, of not wanting to model themselves off of Sparta, but also just kind of not seeing that one little little aspect that uh, is pretty closely connected with 
with that group. Um, oh gosh, I've done, <laughs> this is how I always find myself towards this, this part in the conversation is like just taking it all in still and <laughs> trying well, to figure well, out how to form further thoughts. But well, the stuff is pretty mind blowing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and uh, obviously I've become used to it, but uh, I remember, you know, when I first encountered this monsieur, when I was doing my archival research, uh, yeah, I was really I was as astonished as you are now, Liz. Well, yeah, I mean, it's also something, you know, I'm sort of just slowly diving into more historical aspects on the podcast, because obviously I've been focused on mythology for a long time. And, and, and so it's, it also uses totally different parts of my brain to to take in all of this information of like, oh, this is all, you know, real historical ideas and facts. But especially I've, I've always had a, a fascination with, with history broadly, but like, either ancient Greece or sort of 20th century history has been my interest points. And so this, the, all the connections you've been making on that front, as well as, you know, as, as further back than that is just connecting all of the, the forms I've, I've always, or the, the fascinations I've already, I've always had in terms of history, putting it all into one place. And um, the one thing we, we, you sort of just touched upon um, and perhaps or we don't need to necessarily go to, into too much detail, but I, I have always been interested. Um, and I think it makes a strong connection to, to how, how far Sparta has come in terms of the general usage of, of them as a people in their militaristic society. But, but the way that they were used by Nazis, you know, you, you hinted at, at mm. the, or you, you know, mentioned the, the textbook and everything, but, but it went pretty deep, didn't it? In terms of, of the, the way that the the Nazis and Hitler specifically like used Sparta to sort of further their aims. It, it did indeed. Yes. Uh, and um, I, I'm not by any means the expert on this. Uh, uh, Helen Roche, whom I mentioned earlier, uh, and mm-hmm. a German scholar, Foucault Lozemann, have really investigated in great detail. Um, but in brief, as I mentioned earlier, the Germans, well, the Nazis, generally did think there was a racial and even a blood connection between themselves and the and the uh, the Spartans. They picked upon this idea of the Spartans as being Dorians who'd come down to Greece from the north, therefore they'd come from you know, northern Europe, loosely defined, um, therefore they're Aryans and uh, can be seen as the ancestors and progenitors of the of the of the, of the, uh, the modern Aryan Nordic uh, race, as we've been discussing, they, they very much uh, uh, majored on Sparta's martial characteristics, and you may already have heard about this, but even when Germany is losing World War Two, um, they're calling upon the image of Thermopylae as as a sort of a, a uh, an image of noble self-sacrifice, even a losing cause, obviously in the hope mm. that, as in Thermopylae, it will turn into a victory. So when the German Sixth Army is surrounded by the Soviet troops at Stalingrad, Goering makes a radio broadcast. It's actually also, coincidentally, the 10th anniversary of Hitler's accession to power, and we're talking about 1943 here, um, he makes a, a radio broadcast, which is also broadcast to the troops uh, besieged at Stalingrad, evoking Thermopylae and urging the German Sixth Army to fight to the death like the Spartans did at Thermopylae. 
course, ironically, the many of the commanders of the German Sixth Army, who you know were often trained in classics, they were not taken in mm-hmm. by the by this appeal, um, and they in fact surrendered the the, the following day. So the military aspect, uh, and then the eugenic aspect too, the, right, the Spartans' right. supposed killing of helots um, is often you know, used in justification of the Nazis' killing of various uh, groups, of course, Jews above all, but but sort of the disabled, and, and uh, um, they bring in, of course, the Spartans' supposed rejection of, of uh, weakling children, uh, and uh, the story that Plutarch tells about uh, uh, winkling infants being exposed, again, probably totally unhistorical, but but uh, mm-hmm. it, it's in Plutarch's Lycurgus, and, and, and therefore it's believed. And uh, so this and the killing of the helots sort of supports the, the Nazis' violence and murder uh, of, of various groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even on the level of agricultural policy, there's a very interesting character called uh, Walter Dare, who uh, wrote this book called um, uh, Blut und Boden, The Blood and Soil. And he wrote it before the Nazis came into power. Um, and then, but he later on became the agriculture minister. And he introduces a, a, a new uh, law of uh, land tenure, which he models o- on Sparta's supposed land tenure. So again, Plutarch's uh, uh, Lycurgus talks about uh, farms being fixed in the in the family, and you and you can't sell your farm; um, it has to pass down through your family to to, to uh, your son. And Walter Dare's uh, new law as Reich's Minister for Agriculture um, tries to impose a, a similar fixity of land tenure uh, upon the uh, German peasant landholders. The idea is to you know, just stabilize German uh, agriculture. So even you know throughout all the different spheres, and there are probably other spheres too that I've I've never studied personally. Um, mm-hmm. Sparta is sort of uh, ever present uh, model of, of how to go about things. Uh, the only sphere where I can think off the top of my head where Sparta isn't followed is in the sphere of homosexuality. Mm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the um, German um, schools ministers is actually uh, dismissed from his post uh, because uh, he'd been found to be having a, um, a gay relationship with, with, um, with another man. And he objected. Um, but this is what the Spartans did. Uh, the Spartans had homosexual relationships. But... His uh, his argument there didn't didn't wash, and, and uh, he he was still dismissed, and so, so that that was the one aspect of uh, of, of, of Spartan policy that the Nazis uh, couldn't couldn't tolerate. But it's also worth stressing how Sparta penetrates through um, uh, German popular culture too. So there's some lovely um, um, newspaper adverts for a uh, a sun cream called Sparta Creme. And it's made by the famous the manufacturers of the famous eau de cologne. And they uh, they developed the Sparta creme and they show images of uh, a Spartan mother on the beach with her young son. And the, the and she's putting the, Spart- the sun cream on her son. 
the Sonny's sitting there wearing a helmet, uh, a shield with Sparta creme on it, uh, and holding a sword. And and and, and so Sparta is is very much sort of you no, know, it, it's a a brand name too uh, that, that, that will sell and will, will appeal to the the public in general. How very odd. <laughs> Yes, it, it, indeed. Yes, and, yeah. and and the most frightening thing of all, really, is that um, as I mentioned earlier, Sparta was used as a model, role model in the, in the Nazi elite schools, and um, Helen Roche has uh, um, noted in one of her works that had Germany won World War Two, Europe would have been governed by my modern Spartans. By these, mm-hmm. uh, uh, by, you know, by Germany's Spartan children, uh, who, who who would have been the next generation of, of rulers of a, of a, of a, a Nazi-controlled Europe. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so. It's so interesting the way these things permeate. Um, this whole idea of mine to to do this series on Sparta came out of the series I did on Atlantis. Um, mm. which supposed not coincidentally also included the Nazis utilizing Atlantis for their bizarre <laughs> Aryan nonsensical aims. And, and so, you know, the, these things come out of my wanting to share accuracy uh, from these ancient world ideas, um, but also specifically accuracy to counteract the modern ideas that tend towards things like Nazism. Uh, and so it's, yeah, it, it's just so additionally, you know, interesting again i'm just i need another word but i just keep using it um to to hear all of these really explicit connections like i certainly knew you know the broad idea um but i mean going as far as the agriculture is fascinating and just the the ways in which they would connect to this this culture and so many things about it that are you know based in plutarch entirely who's writing so many hundreds of years after what he purports to be explaining you know there we know so little about what was actually going on in Sparta then and, and mm. everything we know is based on his, you know, whoever knows what was accurate and what was not in, in Plutarch, but certainly a lot of not accurate. So it's just, it's fascinating to see the ways in which it's been sort of taken and, and utilized when so little of it is is accurate to begin with. And of course, I do feel, it, it, make sure I say um, in terms of the, you know, the the whole Aryan idea of Nazism and all those connections are are nonsensical. Um, and, and based entirely in racist ideas and then wanting to connect to this, this ancient idea of, of Greece. So, uh, yeah, it's just, oh gosh, it, again, it's so much to take in, but I'm absolutely <laughs> thrilled to have all this information now and all of this knowledge. Cause I think, I mean, obviously I can listen to ancient history when it comes to Greece forever. Uh, but, but yeah, it's just, there's so much here. Wow. And I mean, the, the odd thing is, uh, for modern scholarship, how for so long Plutarch has been the go-to source, you know, writing so many centuries later, whereas we have this, you know, marvellous accounts by Xenophon um, mm. and often neglected, and in particular his uh, his history of Greece, um, or Hellenica, um, has some lovely vignettes of Spartan life in which uh, Spartan life is, the military is not mentioned. So, mm. you know, um, I don't know whether Rule or any of the uh, other colleagues have mentioned this, but there's an episode um, called The Conspiracy of Kinodone, or, or that's the modern name for it. It's a, 
the story of a, of a of a conspiracy or a planned conspiracy. It never actually gets off the ground, where the lead conspirator, a man called Kinadone, takes a potential recruit on a guided tour of Sparta in order to show the recruit how outnumbered the Spartans are. So in effect, it's a kind of guided tour of Sparta. And first they go into the Agora, the marketplace, and they see the main Spartan officials and a number of perhaps 40 other Spartans doing business in the Agora, uh, political business or perhaps market business, we don't know. Then they go into the streets of Sparta and see the Spartans wandering around in ones and twos. Um, and then they go out to the country estates of the Spartans and they see on each estate a single Spartan master supervising the labour of a much larger number of labourers. And these are obviously the helot labourers who are working mm-hmm. in the Spartan estates. Well, that image of Spartan life is very different from the image of a, a, a group of men who always group together um, do military training. These Spartans are going about their own private business with their own independent schedules, some doing music in the Agora, some you know, going between business in the streets, and others out on their estate supervising the agriculture. And that image isn't isn't just that, that episode, but there's a, a later episode that Xenophon recounts where he... Um, um, there's a certain Spartan general who's been actually put on trial for, for a military misdemeanor. Um, but he uh, he flees Sparta rather than face trial. But his son uh, uh, tries to intervene on his behalf. And I shan't uh, go through the whole story, but there's a, there's a scene in the early morning in Sparta where the king's son is trying to intercede with his father um, uh, on behalf of this young man and, and the, the general who's about to go on trial. And what we see is that um, the king, King Agislaus, comes out of his um, his house in the morning, goes down for a bathe in the river Eurotas, and there's other Spartan citizens along with foreigners uh, and even uh, uh, various servants who are lined up to have conversation with him or to petition him for various things. So, again, we've got Spartans who are free, to, free in the early morning to, to, to go about their personal business talking with the king. And then later on in this episode, um, you've got this young man whose general father has fled and therefore he's got no guardian to look after him. And it's evident that the general's um, friends are keeping an eye on this young man, uh, watching who, 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 who comes to his house and who doesn't. doesn't. And so these friends are clearly not spending all their time on military training, they're simply socialising as a group and, as it were, acting in loco parentis um, for for this youth who's in his teens, um, given his father's absence. So for these episodes, we get the idea that Spartan life is as much about socialising and about going about one's private business um, as it is about military training. Uh, It's very far from the the, the image that we, we have of the Spartans are spending all their time sort of uh, on, on, on practicing uh, uh, training for war, and yet this marvelous source has been neglected. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's just such a good example of of just everyday life, just absolute normalcy in the most interesting way, especially when it comes to the ancient world, because so often we don't have 
evidence of what normal life actually looked like because it was so normal that people didn't write it down, you know? And, and so, yeah, so it is, it's so lovely when we do have these moments and then especially, especially for, for a place like Sparta where it has all of these ideas that, that make us think that everything revolved around this military. And it's like, you know, no, they, they did their regular business, you know, just as much as anyone else. And, they just also happen to have various other things, you know, that that led them to have the military that they did, you know, time and and a lot of helots being the the main reasons. And that that's been so interesting for me as well to learn all of all of this about Sparta. It's just yes, there's so and, much more to the world. Yeah, and, and the the important point is that the Spartans had to devote all this time to their economic and social affairs because to remain a Spartan, you have to contribute amongst the quota of foodstuffs to your common mess and if you mm. fail to do that you lose your citizen rights you get chucked out of the mess and lose your citizen rights so mm. every spot has to make sure that his farm is working efficiently uh, that the produce is, is growing well you, you have enough food stuff and they need to do market business selling surplus produce and so on and they also need to socialize too because one of the most efficient ways of stabilizing your wealth is to get good marriages for your sons and daughters mm. and to marry into other wealthy families so that you know the wealth will, will come in. Because I don't know whether you've covered inheritance rights in Sparta, but basically, as in other Greek states, um, the, the parents' property is divided among their children and... Um, in Athens, it would be mainly among the male children, but in Sparta, it's also among the women too, the daughters. Um, it seems quite likely that daughters have a lesser share, but they still have a share, um, probably at the rate of a half a son's share. So, for example, if you've got two sons and two daughters, each son will get, uh, let me do the math, each son will get a third of the property, mm-hmm. that's two thirds, and then each daughter will get a sixth of the property. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that makes up the other the other other third, um, and and therefore, for a Spartan family, you know, if you have children, your children are going to be poorer in the next generation than you are, unless you can get them good marriages, and and therefore mm. the wealth will, will be coming in from, um, you know, particularly you marry uh, marry a wealthy heiress, and so you've got to keep up the socialising to get in good terms with, with, with men of, of the right sort. And that's why all, all these groups of, of, of friends and comrades and, and that you see in the uh, in, in that trial episode I mentioned earlier, uh, that's why it's so integral to Spartan life. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. No, I, I hadn't heard that. And so that's a great addition to, to all of this because, I mean, especially, it's of, of course, it based on everything about my show it's very nice to hear that women got something it'd be nice if they got an even amount but something is a lot in ancient greece so that's lovely um but yeah and i know sparta too like it wasn't a huge population of people who were officially spartan so i imagine you're also working with not a huge you know pool of people that mm. that you can you know marry your children off to because you'll you'd certainly want them to be a real spartan if you're a real spartan so that's a yeah, an, an additional. It's really it's like a lot of work to to make sure that you're going to match them off with somebody worthy enough. Precisely, yes. I mean, even at their their peak that we know of, the Spartans are only eight thousand uh, citizens. 
and mm. they rapidly decline so that by the time of the Battle of Lutra um, in 371, they're barely more than a 1,000, maybe 1,500 at most. Uh, and Aristotle says they even drop below a 1,000 because 400 Spartans are killed at Lutra. So uh, wow. um, the numbers decline quite rapidly. And it probably, the main reason is probably that there's an increasing concentration of land. The the rich Spartans are marrying rich Spartans. They're cutting poorer Spartans out of the, uh, the land. And many poorer Spartans get to the level where they can no longer afford their mess contributions and therefore they, they cease to become full, full Spartans. So there's an mm. intensifying need to keep up with the Joneses to uh, keep, you know, to, to socialise like mad, uh, to get the right connections and so on, so that uh, you know most of your time it, it is spent on these these essential social and economic matters. Right. Yeah. Wow. Spartan culture and and that whole side of it, their political or if it's if that's the right term to use, but just the the way that the society functioned you know, in all those ways that it is so unique compared to other Greek city-states has been one of the things I've found most interesting as well. Like all of these things that make it, I mean, their Helot population, the, how small the official Spartan population was, everything you're saying about land ownership and, and all of that, it's just, it's so fascinating because it is just so unique compared to the other city-states. And you can kind of see why, like, I mean, the way you're describing it now, it's not surprising that they would fall to such levels when there is such stricture involved in just keeping up with being an official Spartan citizen. feels very difficult. <laughs> yes, and of course that's a difference from Athens, which it doesn't have a, a property qualification for, for being a citizen. Um, mm. In Sparta, you know, although it's not a property qualification in terms of you must own this much land, it is in terms of you must produce this much produce. So it's a much more exclusive uh, group uh, from which you can easily easily drop out. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like it'd be very easy to drop out, just have too many kids and you're slowly, you know, weeding them all out by just just volume versus how much there is to produce or or how much land to produce it on. Wow. And, and, And that partly explains some of the rather strange or strange to our eyes marriage customs that, uh, Mm. Um, that um, they practice uh, uh, polyandry, whereby you know, um, several brothers can can marry one woman, and 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 that we don't know how that works out in terms of sexual relations, but as an ec- economic thing, it means that the the brothers keep their property intact, and they and then they get the property f- from uh, uh, coming in from from the, the woman that they marry, and it will therefore reduce the number of children that those multiple brothers produce uh, because it, you know, there's only one woman. Um, mm-hmm. so, so, so that will help help stabilise property, um, uh, to, at least to a certain extent. Uh, so um, that's, you know, interesting how the marriage customs are uh, adapted to mitigate some of the dangerous effects of, of the of the inheritance system. Yeah, I did not know about that. That is really interesting that that multiple brothers could marry one woman. Wow. And um, while we're on the subject, um, there's mm. also a, a system um, which you can either call wife sharing or man doubling, 
depending on your perspective, whereby uh, a Spartan who doesn't want to get married can approach another Spartan and ask to borrow his wife for purposes of procreation. And uh, uh, it's Xenophon who tells us about it. Well, Plutarch mentions it as well, but Xenophon is, is the first source, so it's a contemporary mm-hmm. source. And he says that the men are kingless arrangement because they get extra brothers who form, or half-brothers we would call them, who form uh, part of, of their kin, but, but don't, don't have a claim on their property. So uh, each child only, can only claim on their biological father. They can't, uh, can't claim on, on the other man as well. And he says, the women like this because they get to control two households, <gasps> their original husband and, and, and their second partner. Yeah. Um, and this ties in with, with something we know from another source, uh, namely that the Spartans permitted um, the children of the same mother but different fathers, they permitted them to intermarry. Oh. So <laughs> if we get the situation where the woman has produced you know, children by her husband and then by her second partner, and those children are allowed are, are allowed to intermarry. Uh, in anthropological terms, they're, they're uterine half-siblings. Um, yeah. And this is another way of concentrating the property because it, it sort of uh, it uh, it concentrates the the property of of the of the, the girls and boys from from, from produced by, by the two different men mm-hmm. and so you can see how it all makes you know makes sense once you understand the logic and the demands of the inheritance system you can see why all these marriage customs are are adapted to uh, to mitigate you know, the, the danger that you might uh, your landholders might dissipate and, and 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 reduce over time. Yeah, what interesting practices! Wow, <laughs> indeed, <laughs> like those are really something. <laughs> um, but before you think it's so odd, um, the same source that tells us about the Spartans allowing uterine half sibling marriage also says that in Athens, the Athenians allowed it the other way around, so that children of the same father by different m- mothers could intermarry. Now, we don't know what why that's the case, and I, I don't know of any Athenian historian uh, who's explored it. Um, but uh, yeah. um, the Spartans, although, it, although it's different from Athens, uh, they're not totally exceptional in in allowing a form a form of half sibling marriage. Well, you know, different times. <laughs> I suppose Maybe. it can't can't be just the one. Uh, wow, that is that is just generally. I mean, I'll, as always, every episode I do with these conversations is just the most <laughs> interesting thing, and I always learn unexpected things, like turning this into this these intricacies of land ownership. I'm thrilled that it turned that way because that's fascinating and it hasn't come up in my other conversations. So perfect. This is thrilling. And the weird things they did. I'd already known Sparta was pretty weird just generally in comparison to the rest of Greece. But I I love hearing these additional daily life pieces or familial levels of 
oddities, I guess. Yes, I mean, that's what makes Sparta so interesting. And uh, that's why <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm still studying Sparta some 40 years uh, on from when I first started. It's nearly fifty years now. <laughs> I'm getting older. <laughs> well, I can I can see why. Like, really, it, there's just there's so much, and they're they are just so interesting. I'm thrilled that I am moving into history on this show because I just want to learn more of it all the time. <laughs> so it's just, and then I get to speak to brilliant people like you. So thank you so much for doing this. This has been so interesting on so many different levels. I really appreciate it. It's been very fun. Well, it's been great fun, Liv, and you know, thank you for, 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 for inviting me on. And uh, it really has been a great pleasure you know, talking about Sparta to someone who has a genuine interest. And uh, you know, I, I really do uh, love the concept of what you're doing, you know, first with Atlantis, and now I'm glad you're turning your attention to Sparta because we really do need to work hard to, to, to dispel all these myths uh, about Sparta. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. Well, I'm. Thank you for asking to come on because that was a real thrill. But I, I am so happy to be doing this. And even just your use of the word myth there, I'm like, oh, that's how I'm going to turn it into. This is fine. It's on brand for my show. Is this is a different type of myth that I'm covering, and I'm actually, you know, talking about why it isn't true, but it's still a myth. So you know, it still counts in, in the show that I've built up around mythology. But suddenly want to talk about history, or in the case of Atlantis not history and not mythology. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're, probably, probably, you're probably aware that normally Spartan historians call it the Spartan mirage. Um, but uh, you know, myth is, is an equally good uh, good term for it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. At least one of the episodes is, is absolutely going to have the title of the Spartan mirage because it's a wonderfully beautiful phrase that really well describes kind of everything going on you know in so many different mm. ways there, there seem to be so many different types of spartan mirages depending on kind of what you're looking at in this culture it's fascinating yes. and uh, when i was in lyon uh, last month uh, um i was giving a plenary lecture and i was giving it in the same university and the same lecture theater where the inventor of this phrase uh used to used to teach uh, uh, François Ollier uh, was was a professor of, of Greek at the uh, Université de Lyon, um, and um, the lecture theatre I was lecturing in was built in the eighteen nineties, and uh, it was the main lecture theatre where he, where he would have given his lectures. And uh, you know, the, the, uh, the thought that I was standing on the same spot as François Ollier and who invented the term Le Mirage Spartiat was that was really quite quite awe inspiring. Yeah, that must be a wonderful feeling, kind of pulling it full circle and, and talking about it in, I imagine, a very different way from how he would have, but but the same general idea. And and it is such a beautiful term, and it, it really just does describe everything so well, you know, be it the, the modern Spartan Mirage of 300 and all of that, or, you know, the mythologizing of Thermopylae in antiquity or everything kind of in between, mm. you know, there's so many different ways you can use that, that term. And it just so well describes everything about Sparta and the, you know, the examination of it, the study of it. It's fascinating. I think the main difference between the way that Ollier and I would use the phrase is that um, Ollier saw the mirage purely in terms of the idealization of Sparta. Uh, that's, that's the subtitle of his book, whereas mm. I see the mirage 
as only being partly about idealization, it's also about uh, the way that Sparta is often viewed negatively in, in our mm-hmm. by ancient writers. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I think you know, we need to come to a more balanced uh, uh, balance between idealization and and, uh, and over negative views of Sparta. Yeah. Well, that's certainly my intention with this series is I just kind of want to talk about what, as far as we know, what was actually going on there versus Mm. these ideas that we have about it now, particularly the modern pop culture ideas and just sort of what was actually happening there. You know, there was good Mm. and there was some bad. That's certainly all of ancient Greece. It's not not specific to Sparta. And it's just it was sort of just a one place out of many. It just happened to be quite unique and then get quite famous comparatively. So yeah, yeah, it's just there's so much. I'm thrilled to be covering all of this. Uh, but I, I feel like I've kept you long enough. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, is there anything you'd like to share with my listeners in terms of where they can read more or, or learn more about Sparta broadly or, or this um, specific subject, obviously? Yes, um, there's a, uh, a book due to come out in November. Um, it's called uh, Classical Controversies. Um, uh, mm. The subtitle is Reception of Greco-Roman Antiquity in the 21st Century. Um, uh, edited by uh, Kim Bearden and Timo Epping, and it will be published by uh, the Sidestone Press in the Netherlands. Uh, and the great thing for your listeners is that the Sidestone Press is an open access press. Oh. So um, publication date is the 16th of November, um, and uh, the volume will be open access on their website to read online. Um, you can buy a PDF um, or you can uh, e- even buy a, um, a, pr- a printed copy, but, but if you just wanted to read it uh, uh, online. Um, and the, uh, the volume has three uh, articles about the reception of Sparta in the 21st century. Um, there's my article on called Spartans on the Capitol. Um, mm. There's a, a, a very interesting article on... Um, called uh, Leonidas Goes North about um, the way Sparta has been appropriated in, in Swedish politics and literature. Um, mm. And then there's a, an essay uh, called Pop Culture Against Modernity, which is about the, the new right-wing movements, the identitarian movements in, in France and Germany uh, and the way that, that, that they've made use, use of Sparta. So, so that 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 volume has 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 three essays, um, and and a lot of our other interesting essays on other aspects of, of Greece and Rome, uh, and the way that they're they're currently being used. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. I'm excited for it as well. I'll make sure that I um, provide a link to it in the description as well. Well, well, well. Thank you for listening uh, to me for so long, uh, Liv. <laughs> thank you, you so indul- much for doing it. Me. <laughs> oh my god, it's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh... Oh, nerds, nerds, nerds. What a conversation to cap off this series. I can't even tell you. It's just so interesting, as I said a hundred times in this episode, but which is still always true. It's just so interesting. 
I am so taken in by Sparta for what it actually was. And looking at it, it's just this like weird Greek city state with weird laws and practices. Like rather than this militaristic society of super soldiers, God, the real Sparta was much more interesting. Okay, I'll stop using that word. You've heard it enough. If you've been enjoying this series on Sparta, I would love if you'd consider giving the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really means the whole world to me and it helps the show immensely. And if you found the show through this series, like, welcome. Thank you for coming. I have got so much other content for you. Whew. Typically mythology, but I do like to talk about the mythology in its ancient context. So you are not totally lacking history there. And my God, the guests I have had on this show. Just enjoy and welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Remember, too, if you have any questions that have arisen from this series, things that you'd like explained further, clarifications, whatever, really, Please submit your questions at mythsbaby.com slash questions. I want to hear from you. Also, not to worry, we are not totally done yet. Tomorrow, there will be a special bonus episode dedicated to talking about the elephant in the room. The movie mentioned so many damn times in this series because it truly is either like the cause of so many misconceptions about Sparta or simply like exacerbating so many existing issues. It's also like, sad as it may seem, what most people in North America think of when they think of Sparta, if not beyond North America. That's right, I still haven't said the title, 300. We're talking 300, so stay tuned. Also, as I say this, I realize I've already added on another episode next week on women in Sparta because I had too much to say, so we are not done yet. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith, oh my god, the Hermes to my Olympians. She handles so many things. For this series especially, Michaela was absolutely invaluable, providing so much research and helping me with scripts and just everything. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. Help me continue bringing the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean to you by becoming a patron where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click on the link in this episode's description. Thank you all so much. You're very cool. I am Liv and I love this shit. Mm -hmm.